0: and do my thing I want to get into it man you know like I you know I'm the man don't you can I count it off one two three four you're listening to the church politics podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square
1: this is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. I am Michael Ware. Justin, how are you doing this week?
0: I made it through. I made it through. You know, <laughs> uh, in, in, in Atlanta, uh, we had about a quarter inch of snow, uh, and life kind of stops when you have a quarter inch of snow in Atlanta. But we made it through uh, to see another day, and so I'm glad to be here.
1: Gotta say, it was a long week last week. Y'all had the snow. I had some travel and some travel mishaps, but uh, the news made it (laughs) a long week. There was something happening every day, and and last week seemed like a month. And, uh, you know, I hate to – like, I don't think we we get a break for a long time. I think we're in a very saturated – uh, moment right now and so we just gotta do our best way to to sort through it and, and move forward but man there's a lot to talk about
0: <laughs> sure is.
1: yeah well let's let's jump in and uh first let's let's talk about Iowa uh main thing we want to cover is not necessarily going through all the results though for those of you who haven't been able to 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 stay up uh Iowa held the caucus, the first of the the, the nominating process for uh, the Democrats last week, and uh, uh, according to the counts that we have now, and we'll get into why I have to phrase it like that uh, in, in a moment, uh, Pete Buttigieg ended up with the the highest delegate count. Bernie Sanders is. Uh, very close. So right now, it looks like Pete Buttigieg is going to leave Iowa with 13 delegates, Bernie Bernie with 12, uh, and then Elizabeth Warren came in third with eight delegates. Joe Biden uh, with six coming in fourth place. And then Amy Klobuchar looks like she'll come out with a delegate, uh, and she 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 got uh, about 12 percent. Of the of the vote, no one else got uh, is going to leave Iowa with delegates. But it, it's actually it's actually pretty robust to leave Iowa with with five of the candidates uh, getting getting delegates. Now, the reason I have to report all of this is kind of tentative. Is uh, the reporting that uh, did did not work so well, <laughs> uh, to say the least. The Iowa Democrats had set up a system using a smartphone app that was supposed to allow uh, precinct leaders at the over a thousand uh, uh, or a thousand or so precincts around Iowa to be able to report in uh, their vote counts, of both really uh, three three different numbers related to how the caucus turned out, the first number of votes, how things ended up after Uh, after reallocation uh, and then how, how sort of the delegate uh, count shook out uh, at the, at the precinct level Uh, and uh, the app did did not work. Uh, They tried to move to a sort of phone bank, which is how it traditionally worked, but uh, uh, apparently with the system that they had in place uh, for the, uh, for tabulating the results, That required a smartphone, and a lot of volunteers there didn't have a smartphone. So it was just a mess. Uh, So we did not get results on the night of the caucus. Uh, The Iowa Democratic Party had to make a series of announcements on caucus night about what was happening, and then set various milestones for when they would be trickling out these results. At one point, the DNC chair, Tom Perez, called for a re-canvas. Now we're in the middle of a process where the the results are in, but the candidates have uh, an ability to to challenge the results. And and Justin, uh, uh, meanwhile, obviously the media is having a heyday, Donald Trump's having a heyday. The delay in being able to get results, I think, changed the dynamic of how the caucus results affected the race uh, in a significant way. What do we what do we say about this? Uh, you know, one way to look at it is there's always been human error in this kind of thing, uh, but I was been doing this for a for a pretty long time, and you know, they add technology that's supposed to you know simplify things. And of course, it turned it into a, a bigger debacle, which I think is a lesson for, for other areas of life. But uh, Joseph, what did you think about, about Iowa and how this is still, you know, shaking out?
0: <sighs> Brother, where Iowa was a conspiracy theorist's playground and their life's affirmation all in one, <laughs> um, it had <laughs> necessary really to create the perfect story about how our democracy is all a charade and how anyone who believes in it is a sucker. Um, personally, I tend to think that this was mostly incompetence, uh, although I will say that DNC chair Tom Perez's actions and some of his comments were a little suspect. Uh, And then we can't deny either that, uh, last, you know, four years ago, um, it was, it was pretty clear that they were, were giving it advantage, uh, to Clinton against Sanders. And so some of that you can't just shoo away so easily, but I, I really think most of it was incompetence at any rate. Uh, At a time when people's trust in institutions is so low, Michael, this was yet another preventable series of events that goes along with the very cynical narrative that a lot of people in America have. This was the first vote of the 2020 presidential election. They had years to get this right, and they chose to use a clearly inadequately tested app to do what paper, pen and a phone could sufficiently do. Uh, As you stated, uh, for what it's worth, uh, Pete Buttigieg came uh, out with the most delegates while Bernie Sanders won the popular vote. Um, you know, and you have to give you have to give some credit to Buttigieg here. He definitely worked hard. You know, I, I don't want to take anything away from him on that front. Uh, we have no reason to believe, or we have a, every every reason to believe rather uh, that he's driven, uh, that he is diligent. And so, the question that a lot of people are asking: well, well, how did how did this rise happen? And I think we'll we'll just have to see. I mean, uh, his rise from small town mayor to winning is very interesting. Uh, he's you know, we have to we have to point to one thing. He's raised a lot of money. I mean, he certainly certainly wasn't campaigning on an uh, Iowa small town uh, on a small town, Iowa budget. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to see what's going to happen. Uh, it is unfortunate that a process, you know, at a time when we need the process to be um, trusted. Right. We need the process to be transparent so that people can trust it and so that people when they go in, they know their vote counts. There's nothing worse than than the people not thinking that their vote counts. Uh, and so that's why when we, we talk about I mean, when Trump was r- running and, you know, saying, you know, questioning whether if, if he lost, he wasn't saying whether he was going to accept the loss or not. You you do not question re- results of, a, of of an election unless you have very sound evidence that someone was wrong this particular instance provides you know enough to where somebody could question the results. And if you're on Twitter, at least on my Twitter feed, you have a lot of people, especially in the Bernie Sanders camp, that are just questioning the results. Uh, so that's never good. I think you got to give props to Pete Buttigieg, whether you know you think it was fair or not. Uh, he came out the winner as far as delegates go, and he worked hard, worked hard to do that. Now, what people are saying now is the knock that they're trying to bring out as well, he has, uh, Sanders people are saying that he has 40 billionaires that are supporting him. Um, which gives you an idea because I, you know, I did have trouble understanding how people like Booker and Castro struggled so much to get support and to get funding and Buttigieg didn't seem to have any, you know, any problems getting funding. I didn't think he was a much better candidate than them, but there must be something that people are catching on to that they weren't bringing to the table. A lot of people were trying to figure that out, but I think in, in one quarter he he raised more money than almost both of them put together. Uh, So he has the funding there. That's going to be important for him moving forward. The question for Buttigieg right now, though, is can he win uh, later on, especially when you're talking about Super Tuesday, you're talking about South Carolina uh, coming up? Can he win without African-American support? Uh, His support is very narrow. His support is the type of support that fits the Iowa caucus and the primary in New Hampshire, But does it fit the rest of of the political landscape and and what's going on? So we will see that. What we do know is that uh, he's caused some trouble for Biden and Warren in particular. Right. Uh, Biden was compelled to air a hard hitting comparison ad where his campaign explicitly questions Buttigieg's record. Right. Uh, And here's one of the quotes he says uh, in, in that comparison. It says that Biden led passage of the Affordable Care Act. Which gave health, which gave healthcare to two million people. Uh, then, on the other hand, uh, when park goers called Pete Buttigieg, uh, he installed decorative lights under bridges, giving citizens of South Bend colorfully illuminated rivers. Pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's out. <laughs> that hurts. Um, so yeah, go Decarative check it out. Lights. Yeah, decorative hey, lights. That's what I, I need. I need to see these, see these lights. Yeah, I mean, I need to see these lights. <laughs> they, they they hit them hard, man. So go check out that 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 little piece. Uh, it's one of the best I've seen as far as a a comparison piece. I mean, it is using facts, right? So part of campaigning is that comparison, I, and I think that's fair to make those comparisons. Um, so so we'll see. Biden obviously sees uh, you know a little bit of threat of what happened uh, from what happened in Iowa and what's probably about to happen in New Hampshire. Uh, and as for Warren. Her path to victory starts to look really tough if she doesn't come in for first or second in New Hampshire. Uh, can she stay in the race? Uh, where does she beat Bernie? Those are questions that a lot of people are asking. And as far as winners outside of Buttigieg, I'd say over the long haul, the winners of Iowa were Sanders uh, because it gives him a good start and really Bloomberg. I mean, Iowa left the primary in such chaos that somebody like Bloomberg with the resources that he has, the fact that he's starting late, I don't know if he could have asked for more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, uh, Bloomberg. It's been something to see him at least polling, you know, in in double digits nationally in in some cases. Justin, I just think it's going to be a problem if the Democrats end up nominating someone who, you know, as explicitly and transparently as possible, you know, literally, you know, bought the nomination. And and especially if if it ends up Bloomberg Sanders and that's the way that's the way it turns out, I just don't think I don't think that's going to work out as well as uh as, as some people uh, see, seem to seem to think it will, but yeah, I mean, Bloomberg has yeah, his problem. Will, yeah, it checks out. Yeah, yeah
0: Bloomberg has his problems. I mean, like you said, the first thing, like if he's on stage with Sanders, I think Sanders would love that right someone who looks like they're trying to buy buy everything somebody who you know was formerly a republican who is when it comes to economic issues i just don't think bloomberg really fits the spirit of the day when you're talking about what's going on on the left so he has plenty of issues i'm just saying coming out of iowa i don't know that he could ask for more than this yeah Yeah.
1: no no i think that's exactly right this is exactly the kind of situation bloomberg's hoping to hoping to capitalize on for sure i mean i'll just i'll just say uh Uh, Keep your eyes on Klobuchar. Uh, She she had another impressive debate. Uh, The tracking polls in New Hampshire show her on the rise. I I think, you know, at this point, it's it's well within the realm of possibility that she comes in third in New Hampshire. Uh, I... I think it's worth watching out to see if she's able to leapfrog Buttigieg. Uh, there's a chance that she's able to get second uh, in New Hampshire if her rise post debate continues. That would certainly shake things up. To your point, I think if Klobuchar is able to to jump over Elizabeth Warren, uh, then I think. You know, New Hampshire is a neighboring state. Warren's invested a lot. Yes, she has a great, uh, a, a significant operation uh, in uh, you know across the country. Uh, one of the most developed sort of organizing teams. But if she comes in third in Iowa and fourth in New Hampshire, I, I do think we're going to see pressure mount for her to. To, to drop out uh, f- For Biden it's not so much Pressure for him to drop out If he's not able to crack the top Three in New Hampshire it, It's a, he's just not going to have Money like, right. it, it, it is, it, it is uh, uh, You know I, I think They're going to If they end up outside of the top three in New Hampshire I think they're going to be watching those South Carolina Numbers really closely And I If they see a significant drop off I don't think Biden should. Uh, I I would be surprised if 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 Biden stayed into South Carolina if there was a potential that he would not come in first. I I don't think that's how he he would want to get out of this race. Um, And so New Hampshire is significant for him. Uh, You know, he did open up uh, the debate by sort of suggesting that he wasn't taking New Hampshire too seriously, that he was eager to get to South Carolina. I'm not sure his team was happy with that. That doesn't exactly motivate your organizers and folks who were planning to vote for you in, in New Hampshire. Uh, But I do think things are going to clarify themselves a bit uh, with these with these New Hampshire results. But yeah, Klobuchar. But
0: but to your point, Klobuchar does have a shot here. Uh, You can tell that Buttigieg is in her crosshairs. I mean, she came for him during the debate. She knows she needs to deal with the the distinctions between those two, especially when it comes to experience and things of that nature. So, yeah, I I would love to see her get a boost. I think she deserves somewhat of a boost, but we'll just have to see if she can perform in New Hampshire. Yeah.
1: All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about the return of a democratic strategist sort of kingpin of back to national discourse in the middle of this primary. This is the Church Politics Podcast.
2: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing. The kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, receive, is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more.
1: All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Justin, at uh, James Carville who was one half of the strategist team that led uh, Bill Clinton to the Democratic nomination and to two elected terms as president is uh, kind of returned to the stage over the last week. uh, He had an appearance on MSNBC uh, last Tuesday where he suggested real concerns about the Democratic Party's uh, ability to to match up with Donald Trump and and prevent Trump from g- getting reelected. Uh, Carville said at one point, uh, 18% of the population controls 52 Senate seats. We've got to be a majoritarian party. The urban core is not going to get it done. What we need is power. Do you understand that's what this is about? Uh, and so well, folks can look up that video on m s n b c it was a uh, uh you know it it's only Carville can do you know using some uh flowery uh, language <laughs> Cajun language right. uh he he really was making the point pretty explicitly about about Bernie Sanders, but really about the party as a whole, basically saying that Democrats won the midterms by being focused by speaking to Real core kitchen table concerns health care education uh, and he thinks that that the party's talking about issues that that people don't care about and Donald Trump gives a state of the Union where he spends the first you know fifteen minutes twenty minutes it seemed listing off all of the metrics that he uh, he could point to of how the economy was doing well uh, Carville after the MSNBC interview. Uh, went to Vox to do a more extensive interview with Sean Illing, and, and folks can check out that uh, interview in which he said he was uh, scared to death of the November 2020 election. And just to put a bit more uh, uh, focus, you, you know, Sean asked, asked Carville, for an example of the kind of distract what what Carvel said were distractions in the race. And Carvel said, uh, actually, uh, a few things that we've we've talked about a bit, uh, especially the first item, Justin, he said, we have candidates on the debate stage talking about open borders and decriminalizing illegal immigration. They're talking about doing away with nuclear energy and fracking. You've got Bernie Sanders talking about letting criminals and terrorists vote from jail cells. Uh, it doesn't matter what you think about any of that. Carville was saying it doesn't matter what you think of the policy. It's not how you win a national election, he said. Uh, the, and then just the the closer here, he said, the Republicans have destroyed their party and turned it into a personality cult. But if anyone thinks they can't win, they're out of their minds. Just in the myriad of ways that you could look at Carville's uh, comments, I think exemplify the divides in the democratic party right now. And, you know, there's one way to look at the comments and, and say, you know, gosh, James Carville coming out of the woodwork, man, these establishment Democrats are really nervous about Bernie Sanders. (laughs) They really don't like this guy and they're going to pull out all the stops. And so send out Carville uh, to, uh, you know, after, you know Hillary Clinton, who obviously he's close with, gotten some uh, gotten the news a, a couple of weeks ago uh, about her comments about Bernie. You know, send James Carville out, scare some Democrats uh, into thinking Trump Trump's win is uh, imminent if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, and and uh, you know play it that way. You know, another way to look at these comments are you know James Carville is. Exactly right. What has happened to the Democratic Party that they're, you know, a- a- allowing uh, this this Trump moment to make them more narrow as opposed to more broad? And so, you know, in some ways, the, the reaction to the Carville comments are the actual, you know, divide in the in the Democratic primary. What did you think? Does does Carmel have a point? Are Democrats um, potentially throwing away? Or, or at risk of, of, of losing this election based on, you know, how they've been going about their business.
0: Yeah, I think Carville gets it exactly right. Um, and I've, I've been a fan of his for a long time as someone who's like a 1992 progressive. Uh, I've been a fan of some of the stuff he said for a long time. And, and let me say this first and foremost. Louisiana has the best Democrats. Shout out to uh, Senator Katrina Jackson, Governor uh, John Bell Edwards, two pro-life Democrats. Also, shout out to the former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu. Yeah. They by far have the best Democrats, not even close. Uh, it's one of the only states where you'll find vocal pro-life Democrat elected officials. And I'm not sure that the pro-choice groups go down to Louisiana and try to take out pro-life Dems like they're doing to Congressman Lipinski in Illinois. But I digress. Um, as for Carvel, I think, you know, he's eccentric. He's loud. Uh, I wouldn't use all the language that he uses, but you can't argue against his experience. Uh, he's won some of the biggest races as a campaign manager, and nobody says that he doesn't know what he's doing or know what he's talking about, whether you like how he expresses it or not. Uh, in 1992, he even coined the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, which was meant, which, which meant focus on the economy during the campaign. And that phrase really defined Bill Clinton's message as he went on to beat, uh, President, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, during that election. So Carville, when he talks, there's a reason to listen. And I think the way that he, the way that he talked about it was a lot more substantive and hopeful than what we got from, from Hillary Clinton. Uh, Carville's strongest point to me. Was about Democrats patronizing and looking down on voters outside of that cosmopolitan bubble. Uh, The smugness that we see coming from some uh, progressive circles, especially when you're watching kind of the media and things of that nature, is palpable and it has to stop. Number one, because You shouldn't treat people like that. Even if you disagree with somebody, it doesn't mean they're stupid. And you get the feeling on both sides of the aisle because there's a lot of smugness on the on the right, too. And you can see that in how they treat AOC and other folks. Uh, But you just don't you know, the idea that everybody who disagrees with you is stupid just needs to be taken out of politics. I hate when people say that Van Jones talks a lot about how that that's just ridiculous in his book. And it's a point that needs to be made more often. People can disagree with you and uh still not be evil or completely stupid and, and that needs to stop but you get that kind of smugness coming from the top especially in these campaigns and it needs to stop and then i think his point which you you made the point that he was kind of talking about bernie sanders a lot because i do think bernie sanders has the more establishment democrats very worried but bernie kind of comes out and proves this point bernie sanders uh i think this weekend or maybe just before comes out and make and makes this quote michael he says being pro-choice is an absolutely essential part of being a Democrat. Now, he's at he's at a pro-choice event, of, of course, but he makes the statement that it's an absolutely essential part of being a Democrat. If, if that's not making the, you know, making room for who's a Democrat smaller, if that's not making the tent smaller, I don't know what is, right? Uh, so, so, and then he goes on to say uh, that by this time in history, uh, when we talk about what it means to be a Democrat, being pro-choice has to be a part of that conversation
1: like what does that mean this time in history uh, in i mean this right, time like, this in is, history this is just like you know the, the kind of rhetoric that just replaces thought with just like ahistorical nonsense but continue Justin. i just don't know what that means i, I don't know what, at this time in history okay
0: <laughs> so, so the first thing is if if being pro-choice is an absolutely essential part of being a democrat you and I actually have to question our existence, right? <laughs> are we, are we sure that we really exist, Michael, or are we just optical illusions in this matrix? So that's the first thing and I'm going to give you time on that one. Cause that may take you a couple of years, right? But, but to say by this time in history, what it means to be a Democrat should be pro-choice. So apparently the passage of time makes babies less human. Like th- this is where progressivism gets really ridiculous to me. Like, The truth is the truth. The truth doesn't change over time. What time it is has nothing to do with whether, uh, you know, we should allow late term abortions. If we shouldn't allow the late term abortions in the 60s, we shouldn't. You know what I'm saying? Like none of that changes. So it has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with time. And when progressives make those kind of statements, they just sound ridiculous. And and this is really where and he may really believe all this. I don't know. But it's certainly where playing to your audience uh, goes wrong. Right. So he's playing to this narrow, you know, these uh, pro choice groups and just says something that doesn't, that in no way can help you dr- during the general election. Right. Nobody is going to be convinced to, to vote for you because of that, because of you making that statement. And so I think it's unfortunate, but it goes to what Carvel was saying. It goes to it goes to his point that we're being as narrow as possible when we need to include as many people as we can to beat Trump. The question is, are they willing to not be so dogmatic in order to get the job done? And I'm not sure that the Democratic Party is. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, just I I think as a has a real point, uh, you know, obviously You know, it's no mistake that there was this event at this stage, you know, of of the process. Uh, It shows how much the primary from, you know, starting, you know, a year ago has been basically, you know, a gauntlet of saying things that nobody outside of progressive advocacy groups who fundraise off of, you know, folks who who are extreme and want to move the party in a more extreme direction, you know, going to these groups and, and getting and asked their questions that aren't the American people's questions and then responding with talking points that aren't resonant with what the American people think. Uh, and, and then you wonder why, why and how uh, we get to a, a a stage of the democratic primary where Carville is able to say, you know, what, what he says. Uh, I mean, why are these candidates going to a? I mean, uh, to a to a NARAL cattle call in the middle of the of the primary. I mean, you had Iowa on on, uh, on Monday. You got New Hampshire in eight days. And what way is that a, a great use of time? Well, it's only a great use of time if if they're if they're vying for tens of millions of dollars from from NARAL. Because uh, it's not they're not they're not meeting like real voters. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be dismissive. Like, you know, they all turns out they're volunteers and they they pack the room with their folks. But but like, you know, this is this is a table that's set by an advocacy group that is uh, as responsible for Democratic losses in the Senate as any other group. You know, and NARAL's got candidates like uh, uh, like uh, Katie McGinty in Pennsylvania running around the state uh, two weeks before Election Day talking about how pro-choice she is, which is, you know, whatever if you win. Instead, she loses the pat to me. Well, why isn't NARAL being called to account for the fact that, uh, we we had one less vote for removing Trump from office because of their failed electoral strategy. Instead, a lot of these candidates are are still bowing down to these folks, and it's just it's just ridiculous. I will note, I, I don't th- you know, I, I believe Joe Biden did not go to this this event, and he's he's not gone to other of these sort of cattle call events uh before Uh, I think I I think he he probably feels his position is out there and he's not going to put himself through uh through like he has an actual record you know Booty Judge has to go to these things because no one knows what he thinks or will do because he hasn't done anything uh well when you when you have uh when you've been around for a bit longer you don't have to go to all these cattle call events but just it's it's just it's just a mess. We need to uh we we need to get this primary over, uh, and we need you know a nominee who doesn't feel like uh who doesn't feel like the general relies on appealing to D.C. Beltway groups, but instead to a broad cross section of the American people, and in, in a significant way, that's what this primary is about.
0: Yeah, I think it comes down to this. Um, to Carville's point, and I think it, it, it all rides kind of on this conversation, is the Democratic Party going to allow far left interest groups to run the party? Are they going to allow the people to run the party? And, and that's the question that, that folks have to answer, because the truth of the matter is the far left interest groups have a lot of money. They got the bag. And so in trying to get that bag, you end up saying things like uh, uh, Bernie Sanders said uh, the other day right because they're trying to get to the bag but the people have the votes right and so they're going to have to decide what they want to do and if they go for just the bag and go as far left as they can possibly go in the in the primary it may not be that easy to get back to where they need to get to but hey that's their choice and we'll see what happens yeah
1: all right we're going to take another quick break when we get back we're uh, Justin uh, you wrote a great piece in the hill and want to talk about it after the break this is the church politics podcast we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and Justin, last week you wrote an article for The Hill. Uh, the headline is our self de- our self defeating politics of pettiness serves no good. Uh, this article was reflecting on uh, the the series of symbols and uh, expressions uh, out of the State of the Union. President Trump appearing to reject uh, a handshake from Nancy Pelosi, uh, Speaker Pelosi. Uh, ripping up the president's speech transcript after he concluded his speech, uh, sort of in, in clear view of the, the cameras. Uh, and and uh, you you wrote what I thought was a, a, a very good article uh, about how this sort of pettiness doesn't serve the people, doesn't Uh, get anything productive uh, done. I would love to hear more from you on on why you thought this article was uh, important to write and and what the alternative is.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks, Michael. I appreciate that. Um, Since Trump got into office in 2016, uh, one of my biggest concerns, and I've said this several times on here, so y'all have heard it, but it's real. One of my biggest concerns with that was that we would allow we being the entire political landscape and and everyone who participates in it, that we would allow uh, him to reset the standard of American political discourse. Uh, That's been one of my one of my biggest concerns, along with all the other madness that goes on, because that's longer lasting (laughs) than a lot of other things might be. Uh, And sadly, based on the actions of Republicans, Democrats, what we saw from Nancy Pelosi that day. It seems that seems to be the case. Uh, it seems that he has set the standard uh, and everyone else is following his standard that we're responding to Trump in kind instead of responding in, to him in a way that is more astute and that holds uh, our, that, that shows that we're holding ourselves to a better standard. And the example that I that I use was Nancy Pelosi ripping up this transcript uh, after the State of the Union. Now, that was one example. Uh, I can we can go on and on about all the different examples about how uh, uh, candidates and uh, talking heads, how they talk in the public square since Trump has gotten to office. And that has really just changed. And you really see this pettiness, right? This pettiness that really reflects what you see on a lot of reality television. Right. You could almost replace some of the things said in a reality television show and put it in a political context and people would cheer it on because we almost expect it. We like it. I think that it's it's that uh, reality show kind of mixed with the faux news, like that comedy news that came out. And now everybody's like a political comedian Mm -hmm. and you never get serious about the issues. Right. So the issue to me here isn't that we're so fragile that we don't want to hear people say mean words. The problem here for me, the biggest problem is that pettiness by definition right. Right, isn't right. to be taken seriously. And so what happens is that it trivializes very serious issues. So we say we're so uh, serious about these issues. We say we care about the people and the issues so much. But when you use pettiness as a means to uh, communicate the issue, then you, you're not to be taken seriously. And what happens at the end of the day, the people who are suffering continue to suffer because it not only frustrates the process, but now we're not communicating in ways that should be taken seriously. Uh, and I, and I, in, in an article, I basically say this. I say, now, look, a talk about systemic injustice in this day and age is no longer an opportunity to inform and challenge, but instead mm-hmm. a chance to demean and tell the other side off. Uh, It's perplexing to me uh, to see those who claim to be advocates of Americans in need diminish their issues by diverting attention away from the merits. When when people are hearing all kinds of petty jokes and all kind of, you know, are seeing all these these petty gestures, it takes away from the actual merits of your case. Right. I would like you to focus on why we should make sure that the poor uh, are taken care of and what policies get get us there. But now I got to get through all this pettiness and I can't even really get to the substance of of what you're trying to say. Uh, The the other thing about this is when we act this way, it's really not about the people. It's really about us. Right. It's really us being prideful. It's us being uh, vindictive. Right. Uh, In other words, it's really about our sensitivity and our lack of discipline and our need to just get back at the other side with all this clap back and and, and everything else. But it's not about the people. Uh, And so that's why it's such a such a big deal. On both sides. And, you know, we we are we stand very firm on the idea that we're going to critique and challenge both sides, regardless of what's going on. It doesn't mean that both sides are equivalent at any given point or on any given issue. But when but wrong is wrong and and it needs to be pointed out. And that's really what, what I was trying to get at in that article, Michael, because we're not taking care of business in the way that we need to. And so a serious determined manner is it goes a lot further in my in my uh, estimate than all this pettiness and all this back and forth and who can have the best uh, clap back or the most witty comeback. It's just not helpful.
1: Yeah, Uh, well, I think you definitely got at it. And it's 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 an important piece. I I do think that there is this uh, if politics is just a game if if it's just about who's able to 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 get power uh then it it makes it much more difficult for people to actually think about what's being presented to them if it's just about emotion if it's just about like you said who's clapping back on who who makes you feel more empowered um, uh, by uh, sort of the the politics they practice, then it doesn't diminish politics at all. In the broad scope, what happens is it diminishes politics, In all the ways politics ought to be important, and it actually inflates politics in all the ways that it's not supposed to be at all. Uh, And so, I I really appreciate it. And and Michael,
0: yeah, no, thank you, Michael. And one of the things you know, you know, just as well as I, we get criticized for this point of view. You know, people say, "Well, times are so serious, and the other side is so bad. How dare you talk about this? This doesn't matter." Blah blah blah. But none of those people have ever proven to me or made any uh, substantive case that this pettiness, this petty back and forth is effective. Right. Like nobody, nobody has made the case that this actually, like what Nancy Pelosi did actually hurt the president or affected some kind of policy or makes it more likely that something else is going to get passed. All it is, is a temper tantrum. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's my sons when they don't get their way, they feel like they got to get it off their chest, right? They got to be upset and they got to act out. Well, that's cute, but it gets nothing done. And, and, and when we understand that it's nothing more than a temper tantrum and it's actually holding us back, then we might get somewhere. And and we have to stop. It's not just the politicians. It's us. We have to stop incentivizing this stuff. Uh, we like this, these sharp insults when we see them on social media. And I say in the thing, it's almost the delusional hope that somehow it'll harm our political or ideological opponents, that somehow it'll hurt them because we just want to hurt them. The The fact of the matter is that it doesn't. Uh, it harms us and it deepens our divisions. Now, when there's a substantive point to be made because we've been so petty, only our echo chamber is going to be listening to what we have to say yeah. instead of kind of being more mature, holding in what we might have wanted to say and waiting for a better opportunity to get people to listen so that we can get things yeah. done.
1: And just, you know, one example of this, and we haven't talked too much about this uh, uh, on this episode, but I see what Adam Schiff was able to do during the Senate trial as an example of what what can happen when you when you approach politics uh like it's important <laughs> or like it's a vocation uh like it's serious now he wasn't perfect in every respect but I think people who watch Schiff uh and I think Hakeem Jeffries uh, as well uh Approach the way that they did the, uh, the, their their role uh, as house managers of the trial. Uh, I think that elevated that their case. I think that that the way that Schiff led the prosecution uh, is is a major reason why Mitt Romney was able to make the decision he made, and why Doug Jones and Joe Manchin and moderate Democrats were able to make the decision they made. You know, on the flip side of that. If Jerry Nadler and I want to be sensitive, be, be, you know, uh, it, it, it is unclear to me how, how much of Nadler's conduct is is related to his, his wife is very ill. But, you know, this started way back when Jerry Nadler was on overheard on uh, a train saying that he wanted to impeach the president before this session of Congress, uh, basically at the, at the very start of this of this session of, of Congress uh we all saw Jerry Nadler uh kind of sneak up to the podium to take a shift's closing argument and i think did some uh, did some did some damage to the case with the way that he he approached that closing argument in in a way that was more vindictive more emotional more condemnatory uh and so i think you know when i look at how that played out When I look at the good that Schiff was able to do, the fact that Schiff, in my view, made what could have been a process that uh, destroyed Americans or or undermined Americans' trust in systems and in in our government, I actually watched the trial and I'm interested what 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 you thought, Justin. I went into the whole process uh, of impeachment. Speaking, you know, it it might be necessary, but I'm worried about the damage it's going to do. I'm worried that Democrats aren't going to be able to approach this in a responsible way. Uh, But but I I was I was I was pleased with with the way that especially Schiff Schiff led there. Uh, Again, if Jerry Nadler was sort of running the show, uh, I'm I'm not sure you would have been able to keep on all the Democrats, you know, into voting for removal.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think there's there's folks on both sides. One of the mistakes that we make here is we say, "Okay, let me first look at whether I agree with a person or not. But you can even look on some people on the right and say, I totally disagree with their vote. I think they compromise themselves. But it's hard to say that somebody like Ben Sass participates in the politics of pettiness. Right. Like he's going to be very serious in what he does. He's going to make his points. You may disagree with him. I disagree with his with his vote vote uh, here. But I do I do appreciate that he doesn't get into the pettiness of it all. He does try to make substantive points. And, and that's really and that's really what matters. It's not about agreement. It's not about not being passionate. It's about taking the matter seriously and treating it with the gravity that it deserves, because there are suffering people that depend on these folks to do their job. And they depend on us not to um, encourage or incentivize this bad behavior. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, I, I think that's uh, enough for uh, this week. Uh, we're gonna see how New Hampshire turns out. We'll see if there are any if if the if the field if the Democratic field contracts at all uh, after after New Hampshire, and then we'll be on our way to Nevada and South Carolina before Super Tuesday. Uh, president trump feels wind at his back Uh, we'll see what he does with uh, approval ratings that are at highs for his presidency Uh, he's seen a little little spike uh, in his numbers Uh, and then we'll just have to stay tuned for how these events unfold and we'll be here every step of the way Justin, uh, any final words before we close this episode out
0: As always, just the outro, man, and camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ and camp until next time. We'll see you.